Welcome to Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. We go behind the scenes to get the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you can become a better leader and gain fresh wisdom for both your personal and professional life. I'm your host, Allison Trebridge. And I'm your host, Caitlin Crosby-Benward. And you're in, in Real, Real Good, good Company. company. <laughs> so absolutely beyond thrilled to have Jonathan Merritt on the podcast with us today, mostly because it's an excuse for both of us to hang out with you, Jonathan. Oh my gosh, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited. <laughs> so so Allison and Jonathan have been close friends for a while, and I have had the pleasure to meet you a few times and have always been very, not only impressed by you, but also very intrigued by you because from all the things I have gathered, it seems like you have a very unique story and upbringing and, you know, everything that you're doing in the world now. So I would love uh, to be caught up to speed as well as our listeners and a little bit of your, your background. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, that I, you know, it sounds like a boilerplate question, but when you're asking it to me, it's a necessary one because you really can't understand who I am without understanding where I came from because it was so formative in my life. I was raised in the deep South outside of Atlanta by a megachurch pastor, televangelist. When I was growing up, my dad was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I grew up in a very conservative evangelical home. Oh, that's home. big. That's, yeah, that's, that's like a lot. That's a it's lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. My, my dad described himself as to the right of Ronald Reagan. So if that tells you <laughs> about the kind of conservative environment that I grew up in. But, you know, I think over the years as I sort of discerned my own calling, as a journalist, as an author, as somebody who kind of works in the media strategy and, and communication space, you know, I had to sort of figure out who I was apart from that. And that's been such an interesting journey. And I know there's a lot of listeners who will kind of understand that, that as you individuate, as you differentiate, as you become your own person, Apart from the person that your mother, your father, your grandparents, your boss would like you to be, what does it look like to do that and do that well and to hold yourself to your, your own standard of success and not the standard of success that you inherited? And so I think that's been my journey for the last couple of years as I've been living out my vocation has been sort of navigating that space. So- with how conservative your family is, and I'm not sure exactly where you are right now, where you lean, but has it been a very problematic issue in your family, what you do or what you believe or what you stand for? You know, these days, uh, you're, you're, you'd be hard pressed to find many families where your differences in worldview have not created much of an issue. And, and that's true. <laughs> That's true, by the way, if, if you and your whole family are progressive or you and your whole family are conservative, I tend to be a little bit more to the left. So that, that comes with its own set of, of challenges. The question for us has been, I think, what does it look like to be very passionate, very opinionated, um, and all intelligent people? 
It's not like I'm the smart one and you're the dumb one, or you're the smart one and I'm the dumb one. It's like, we're both really smart people. We're looking at, at similar sets of data and we're coming away with radically different conclusions and conclusions that we don't just believe are true, but we believe are consequential and that they matter for real people. And so how do we disagree with someone without villainizing, without creating a narrative that says you're the bad guy and I and my friends and people who think like me are the good guys or gals. And so that that's a hard thing. And I think it's a thing that a lot of families are having to sort of figure out in real time because none of us anticipated being where we are, not just in terms of look, we're in 2020 and who would have guessed this, you know, a year ago that we would have a global plague and a crazy uh, economic situation and the election year that we've been through and the amount of division that we've seen and all of the the existential problems that come with all of the, the confluence of monumental situations that have developed in 2020. But I think most of us have never, never really imagined being in a situation where we would have such sharp disagreements with people who we love so deeply. Mm-hmm. And how do you hold both of those things together? How do you hold in one hand a, an abiding and unconditional love for someone? And in the other hand, to hold a fierce disagreement and at times bewilderment. Just, just mm-hmm. sort of looking at each other and saying, I mean, my mom will sometimes say, you know, I, I don't understand you. You know, I, I didn't raise you to be like this. And I always say, well, yes, you did. You literally raised me and I'm literally <laughs> like this. So whatever you did contributed to it. And so what does that mean, <laughs> right? And I think, well, I grew up in your home and you taught me to believe standing on the truth and that facts matter. And, you know, I put together all of the the virtues and values that I I grew up with. And so I'm having to reconcile those values, which I think I'm living out in my life with Mm. the lives that my family is living out, right? And so we're both confused. And so Mm. what does it mean to come to, to the table, bringing so much confusion, oftentimes pain, uh, and, and passion, and at the same time, to express those true parts of who you are without sacrificing the all-important love. And I, I think so many of us are figuring that out as we go and making a heck of a lot of mistakes along mm-hmm. the way. Jonathan, I love how you pull out that, that articulation of you are expressing the values and the virtues that you were raised with. They just happen to be a different expression than your family. But the the heart of the values is the same. And I was so excited to have you on today because we're, we've been focusing this month on, we've gone through mental health last week with Kara, with physical health, how we take care of our bodies to care for our spirits. And now talking about emotional health today and the fact that we are in one of the, I mean, certainly the most divisive time of our lifetimes right now. Um, coming into the holidays, which is already a time when it, where everyone is on edge, everything, I feel like the holidays just kind of magnify. So if you're feeling happy and excited that that gets magnified, and if you're struggling or hurting or 
if there's division, that gets magnified and, and the divisiveness gets magnified. And so how are you thinking about, and and I should preface, you are a prolific writer and cultural commentator, I would call you, writing, I mean, Jonathan's written over 50 books for published of his own, writes for the New York Times, The Atlantic. How are you thinking about just navigating this season of incredible division and showing up in a way that's healthy and loving? Well, I I think that one of the most important phrases that you just use is showing up. Mm. And people will ask me, what should I do? And I think that the baseline is showing up. So many people right now, they're not showing up. They're, They're cutting off. And they are sort of clamping off the, the, the flow of relationship that is coming from difficult sources, from sources that seem problematic, from sources that seem complicated. And by the way, uh, I'm not blaming anyone for this because, you know, if, if you are now homeschooling four children that you'd expect or, or feel prepared to be homeschooling, if you lost your job this year, if somebody that you know died or was hospitalized because of COVID, or maybe you're immunocompromised and you live in fear. Uh, It makes a lot of sense that Uncle Philip, who constantly wants to debate with you how you are contributing to the moral decline of America, or you're having a debate with someone about what the Bible really means when really it's just not uh, the most important issue on your radar. It makes sense that you would have to do a kind of relational triage for your own sanity. And, and that is okay. So, so there are times, I think, where you have to draw boundaries. And uh, you are not required to be in relationship with anyone, even if you're genetically connected to someone. And so if you're in a situation where you say, I really want to love you and to love me simultaneously, but because of the, the way that our lives have, have shaped up, it is becoming difficult for me to remain in close relationship with you and to love myself at the same time. And until I figure out how to do that well, we need a little space. That's okay. And so you have to give yourself grace for those hard decisions. But I think sometimes we go beyond responsible boundary making. And instead, uh, we, we build uh, these kind of comfortable cocoons mm-hmm. where we're insulated and isolated, where we're surrounded in uh, intellectual, political, cultural, religious echo chambers, where everybody is talking like us and, and thinking like us, looking like us, and believing like us. And so insofar as you can do it in a way that is healthy. And that allows you to love yourself deeply and well and first, then I think that we have to uh, attempt to cultivate as much ideological diversity in close relationship as we possibly can. And that is hard work. And a lot of people, I think, they're doing so much hard work in other areas of their life. They just want their relationships to be easy. And sometimes the easiest kinds of relationships are, are often the kinds that create really toxic ideological environments. I have a question. You might not have a good answer for this, but curious. Maybe you do. If you are with your family for the holidays and the issue of 
COVID comes up and the issue of, you know, the presidential debate and the winner and the bowls and all, all the things. And you don't want to get into it. You know, for instance, I have a few people in my family and we have very different views on mask wearing and, you know, gathering in groups and all of that. So is there like a line or a sentence that you would recommend to kind of say to set the tone if they're asking you and they're giving their opinions about all the things? How would how do you recommend kind of yeah, setting setting the tone to have boundaries to kind of stay in a healthy space? You know, I, I'd say a, a couple of things, three things that come to mind immediately. One, if you're following this rule, seek always to understand before seeking to be understood. Mm. Until you truly feel like I get it, I understand where you're coming from, then withhold as a priority in that exchange being understood by the other person. Most people come in with suitcases full of conclusions that they've already drawn. And we find ourselves just beating each other over the head with locked suitcases. Uh, Rather than sitting next to the people that we love and unpacking those things together. And that's where I think we need a little bit more curiosity and a little less confrontation. And so just to be curious about where people are coming from. So that leads me, I would say, to the second thought I had, which is challenge yourself in some of these most difficult exchanges to make sure that at least half of the sentences you speak end with a question mark. Mm. And then begin when they, when they answer the question, rather than anticipating how you would counter their argument, ask yourself why they must believe that that's true. One of the things that that will help you to do if you just take those two steps is it will build empathy, which I think we could use a lot more of, and it lowers the temperature in conversations. Additionally, and of course, if you look at the research that's done with, with the mirror neurons, when you begin to take that posture, you would be surprised how quickly other people will take that posture with you. That empathy is uh, contagious. And so you can actually not just lower the temperature that you're bringing to a conversation, but you will lower the temperature in the whole room. And so you'll find that you, you by, when you change, your family changes. When you change, your community changes. And so that's really important. And then I think the third thing is so much of life right now is seen through the lens of winning and losing. And so uh, you, when you come into a conversation and, and things get heated or you identify a difference, you begin to wonder, how can I win? Now, we all sort of assume what winning means because most of us are using the same standard. Winning for us is conversion. Winning for us says, I'm right and you're wrong. And in order to win, you have to believe in your wrongness and my rightness. You have to begin thinking like me. I think that we could begin to redefine for ourselves what winning means. Maybe winning means uh, beginning to understand how somebody else thinks. Maybe winning means abandoning a quarrel, as an ancient king once said. Maybe winning means prioritizing deep, rich, personal, timeless conversations 
over uh, passionate, bombastic, explosive, political, timely conversations. So I think that most of us enter into these conversations having accepted a toxic definition of what a win looks like. And I think if we step back first before we enter into these things, or if we find that we are, we're losing ourselves in a conversation that we didn't anticipate, to step back and to say, okay, Jonathan, what would a win look like? You know, Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People said, begin with the end in mind. Most people never know where they're trying to get to in a conversation, which is why they lose themselves so often. So taking a minute to say, what would it look like to end this conversation, walk away and feel good about what just happened? And for most of us, that's not going to be screaming, slamming doors, yelling at somebody, name calling, marginalizing, villainizing or demonizing. It's going to be forming a mutual understanding where you can be heard and you can also hear, where you can be understood, but you can also understand. And so just, I think, redefining the win is a really helpful thing when you're in those kind of contentious environments with people that you love, but, but also feel really hurt by. I literally want to drop the mic for you right now, Jonathan. I know. I, I was just going to say, have you thought about being a marriage counselor? <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. all of it. <laughs> Because I was like, oof, note to self, oof, note to self, just with my like relationship, you know, that's, it's so great. It's yeah, obviously I'm sure all the listeners are thinking, obviously this is not just for family holiday time. This is just for life and communicating with whether it's your employees, friends, partners, um, romantic partners, friendships, all the things that's really, really good stuff. You can tell that you have done your, your homework and being a empathetic, good communicator. Well, and the idea of redefining a win is so good because I, I, you're exactly right. It feels like we are in this kind of collective just fight mode right now. And, and there's this sense of if I don't jump in and defend my worldview, whatever it is that, you know, all is lost and that, you know, everything's a battle and to reshape that idea of, of a win being, Maybe it's just a timeless conversation or the other people f- person feeling heard and understood. I think that that's so beautifully said. And Jonathan, I would love your your thoughts. And this is kind of zooming out 10,000 feet. But because you are such a thoughtful cultural commentator, I, I'm just wondering, how do you feel like we got to this divisive place, even just as an, a nation right now? It feels like something as simple as wearing a mask is a political issue now. And healthcare feels politicized. Maybe it always has been, but it just in such an extreme way right now. And, uh, you know, aside from the elections obviously being a big contributor, but what are just your thoughts on how we got to this divisive place? And what are your thoughts on how do we move forward from here just as a society to kind of move out of this division? Well, gosh, that is a huge, huge question. And we could talk about, I think, all kinds of trends, the democratization of media, uh, the rise of the internet and social media, and the way that that incentivizes certain kinds of exchanges. I mean, just think about just think about the fact that when Twitter came onto the scene, right? I mean, when you when fire was invented, it took 
thousands of years, right? However many years to spread around the world. Twitter reached, uh, you know, critical mass in a matter of months. And when they did, they, they made a, a decision to limit word count. Now that seems like a practical thing, right? But suddenly we begin to speak in sound bites, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are, we're forming muscle memory. How many hours a day, you know, if you look at your phone, uh, your phone will tell you how many hours a day you're averaging using social media. You're, you're forming a kind of muscle memory. Uh, when we text people, we're forming a kind of muscle memory. How often do we phone somebody up and have a conversation? I was talking to somebody yesterday who was telling me about how he found all the letters that he was exchanging with an old friend from college and just sitting down and slowing down, right? And having to kind of, to, to begin to think with appropriate levels of nuance. Think about your habits as formative habits. That's one of the ways out of this. Don't just think about what you're doing, but ask yourself, what kind of person is this shaping me into? You know, I saw um, The Social Dilemma, which some, maybe some of your listeners watched. It's a, a documentary about social media that talks about some of the, the downsides of, of uh, technological developments. Uh, and they talk about how, you know, AI is using notifications to form us, that if you can create just a 1% shift in behavior, it's a huge difference. So, you know, on my phone, I don't get notifications for anything, not for text messages, not for phone calls anymore. I don't have anything. Nothing pushes through notifications. Now, would I find out if my mother passed away? 30 minutes later than I would otherwise, I probably would. I'm having to ask questions now about the, the long-term formation of the self. And I think most of us now are, are making decisions for our lives based on entertainment, based on productivity, based on efficiency, based on quote-unquote community. But very few of us are thinking about personal formation, that the things that we're doing are shaping us. They're determining who we become and how we become. And so I think that, that, that many of us, you know, have opted out of the process of personal formation. And then we wake up one day and we're, we are unhappy with who we become. So we hire life coaches and therapists and we listen to you know podcast after podcast after podcast, and we're having to undo the work that we have unconsciously allowed to be done on ourselves. And so what I would do is invite people back into the process to begin to think about the ways that they're stewarding the hours in their days, and then ask the question, is this the kind of person that I want to be formed into or not? And then the only thing that you need from that point is courage. You have to have the courage to make the difficult decisions, to opt out of the platform or to turn off the notifications or to endure, you know, the frustrated friends who wish that you would be engaging in a certain way. But you have to take back your life because if you do not manage the system that we're in, the system that we're in will manage you. It's designed to manage you. And so I, I think beginning to have a little bit more intentionality in a world that has become so so technocratic, that's become so digitized and democratized, 
we have to redouble our efforts to be intentional in the process of, of self-formation. And by the way, you know, I come from the Christian tradition and we have a teaching that a lot of other religions also have. You know, you find the, an analog in Buddhism and, and Islam, but this idea of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. One of the ways that you love yourself is you're intentional in the formation of yourself. You know, Caitlin, you've got some beautiful children. You're always thinking about how the toys you give them, the amount of screen time you give them, the, the things that they read or listen to or watch on TV. You're always asking the question, how is this forming them? What kind of person is this going to shape them into? Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, most of us, we, we claim to love ourselves, but we are not applying that same level of intentionality with the things that we're allowing into our own lives. And so, so, you know, as my, as Oof, my therapist, that is so true. Oof, so my, bad. my therapist would often, she was this, uh, you know, grouchy octogenarian upper West side Jew who, who didn't have much. What's an She's in her eighties. She's an old lady. Let's say she's an old, an old cranky Jewish lady, uh, on nice. the upper West side who has, sharp edged her, the kind of edge you would expect from somebody who's heard a few too many Holocaust stories in her life. Mm. And she would say things to me like, wow, you must really hate yourself to think that you deserve that. And that's what I sometimes think is how little do we have to love, love ourselves that we're willing to opt out of all of these processes that are forming who our future selves will be. And so I would just invite people back into to, to that process. I think that would be one of the most transformative things we could do to change the trajectory that our culture is on. Jonathan, that is, I think, so beautifully said. And I think it, as we think about showing up as leaders and entrepreneurs and in our business lives, I love the analogy of thinking about how you would care for another human to care for a child. And you're thinking about the inputs and how little intention we give to the inputs in in our own lives that form the way that we think and the way that we function. And I guess my my question would be how do you how do we apply this not just to our relational lives but to our work lives? Like how do we make decisions around media consumption, social media, technology that actually form us into better business leaders. I mean, you're an entrepreneur in your own right. How are you thinking about that in your own life? You know, I, I think that there are there are things that we have to do so that we can do the things that we want to do. And so there there are certain spaces online that you have to be if you're going to do if you're going to fulfill your calling and your vocation. And we have to, I think, identify what are the what are the have tos and what are the want tos? The have tos will need an extra helping of boundary making. We need to then ask the second question: Okay, if I have to do this, then how can I do this in a way that is healthy for me? And that may mean limiting it. You know, like I'm back on Twitter now, but I don't have it on my phone. Mm. I don't have a, and, and I will tell you something that's interesting. And, and, you know, I was with saying Allie with one of our mutual friends who's done the same thing. And, and she said to me, you know, Twitter on the computer is just not that addictive. 
Wow. And I've noticed, I, I've noticed the same thing. Sometimes just switching from the, a mobile version to a desktop version solves the problem. And oh, so you begin to kind of tinker. You tinker with these things. And sometimes it may be boundaries in time. I, I've sat now on my phone, I've set, you know, time limits. So my phone will pop up and say, sorry, you know, time limit exceeded. Or I will have my phone will, will shut down all of my apps go dark from 10 p.m. until 8.30 a.m. You can override it, but it, you, you're required to make a conscious decision. And sometimes just having a brief moment to pause will help me with that. But I think you also have the interrelational aspect uh, of, of the work that so many of us do. And what does it mean to build broad coalitions of professional relationships where people may disagree with us? And what does it mean to begin to uh, be comfortable with uncomfortability? Uh, that's that for a lot of people, the reason that we have uh, professional, personal, political, religious echo chambers is we have never done the hard work of being comfortable with uncomfortability. It's why we always feel that we have to fill the silence. We, we, we can't just sort of sit in a conversation that goes silent. And so I, I would say there are things that you can do outside of your work life that will build the kind of skills that you need in your work life. And one of those things is, is to begin asking yourself, what have I been doing this week to learn to be comfortable with uncomfortability, to increase the, the amount of tolerance I have for situations that make me feel awkward uh, or anxious. And those are practices that take time and work. And most of us, I think, are, are not willing uh, to do that work, but we find that the pain of not doing the work greatly exceeds the pain of doing the work. It's so true, too, because so much of this is even just tied to our inability to sit with ourselves and to hold space for our own life, it, the need to constantly have something pinging you and reminding you and, and almost the, the kind of brain candy of that cost us the ability to just be present to, yeah, to our own life. I also, I, I, I've been thinking about this concept. You mentioned boundaries and I've been thinking about, this is a, a little bit of a turn, but because you did mention boundaries, I've been thinking a lot about not necessarily in a professional sense, which I know we focus a lot of on this podcast, but since I think you should become a marriage counselor on the side, I'm curious, what is the difference between a boundary and an ultimatum? Yeah, because, because an ultimatum is conditional, right? So, so ultimatum and this could says, be for family too. Like this could be, you know, this could be even what we were talking about. Maybe it's a family member that we are going to be around in the holidays, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's something to do with like an addiction or a political difference or a view. And yeah, what is that the difference, a boundary and then the ultimatum? So, so say that again, that was, that was good. I need to let that think, sink in. Yeah. I think, a, I think a, um, an ultimatum says it's conditional. So it says, if you do this, then I will do that. And it's, uh, it's often issued as a threat. It's, uh, it's, it's a question of motivation, right? A, a boundary's intention is to protect me. 
An ultimatum's intention is to control you. Wow. So, so oh, I'm saying- That was so I, good. I'm, I feel like I I'm need saying, to rewind this and hear this again. This is so good. I'm saying that, that if you do this, then I will do this to you. And usually both things are negative. A boundary is always a positive. Here, mm. Here's what I need. Right. And then you're right in the sense that it's not conditional, but a boundary will always, the offspring of a boundary is choices. And so everybody has a choice. Right. So if I say to you, hey, you know, if, if, if you continue to do these things to me, I'm going to, I really will need some space. Right. It could sound like an ultimatum, but my motivation mm. there. My motivation there is different than saying, if you don't start uh, cleaning the house, then I'm going to leave, right? That's a threat. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't want to leave. You want mm-hmm. them to clean the house. The motivation is to change their behavior, mm-hmm. right? And so, so if you're wondering, is, am I setting a boundary or am I delivering an ultimatum? Ask yourself, what is the motivation? What do I ultimately want? When I set a boundary, what I want is I just want to be safe protected and healthy. And Mm -hmm. when I set an ultimatum, what I really am doing is I'm bringing the pressure of a possible negative consequence into the situation in in hopes of coercing you to modify your behavior according to my desires, my wishes. And so uh, you might think of them, they're not twins, but they're, they're cousins, right? They can often present in similar ways. But if you peel back the layers and you, you begin to judge the motivation, you'll see that, that they're quite different in their genetic makeup. Wow. Jonathan, all of this has been so good and so helpful just as we think about emotional health, boundaries, as you brought up, Caitlin, how we have thorny conversations. And in, in the last few minutes, I, you know, you know, I'm a major book lover for obvious reasons and with our company copper all around books, but what, what books or resources could you point our listeners to that have had an impact on your life in thinking through how we either show up in emotional health to our own lives or how we, you know, honestly just love and engage with people well who, who disagree with us? You know, uh, I, I've been reading, I'll give you some kinds, some kinds of books that have, have really shaped me. I, I think that books on trauma are incredibly important because oftentimes we, we think that I'm showing up and you're showing up and we are having a conversation. And instead what's happening is I'm showing up and my trauma is showing up and you're showing up and your trauma is showing up. The reason that maybe you're issuing that ultimatum is because you have a fear that has been implanted in your life by an overwhelming situation somewhere in the past that has not been processed and resolved, right? And and if we don't acknowledge that other entity in the room, what we end up doing is speaking out of trauma, acting Mm. out of trauma, and doing it in a way that's unaware. And so, you know, I think you had, uh, you, you, you're, you had or you're having miles on here from Onsite. Uh, yeah, I, we just I was did. able to spend a week at Onsite and began to realize the, the, there are so many of these formative events 
And, you know, sometimes you can, you, you know what these are right away. If you've got a history of abuse, if you grew up with parents who were divorced or depressed or abandoned you or physically uh, harmed you, if you had a, a situation where you felt more pain than your body had the ability to cope with or process with, that residual pain resides in your body and it still lives there and it's telling you stories. It's giving you scripts. It's saying things like, nobody cares what you think. It's saying things like, no one will ever love you. If I trust you, you will hurt me. Mm. If I open my life to you, you will leave me. Mm. And so these, these scripts are running and they're telling us, uh, they're, they're giving us assumptions about the way the world works. And we are bringing all of those scripts to the table when we're having conversations and they are influencing the kinds of relationships that we have and the kinds of tensions that emerge in the kinds of relationships that we have. I think the, the other thing that I would say is we tend to overestimate the importance of the moment. You know, uh, imagine, think about the, the biggest thing in your life when you were four or 14 or 24 right? That guy that broke your heart when you were 18 and you wasted a year of your life with your, your shades drawn tight. If the older version of you could go back, you would say, it's really not that important. And I have a feeling that for many of us, the types of things that we are freaking out over, that we are severing relationships over, what we need to do is we need to invite our future selves to come visit us in the present and to have a word with us and to remind us that just as these, these moments that we thought were the end of the world, uh, with a little bit of time and space and perspective, we will realize that the pain that we were creating or enduring, uh, the things that we were putting up with or that we were uh, inflicting upon other people were not worth the cost. And so uh, sometimes just having a conversation with your future self can be a really helpful exercise. So if people out there haven't read, you know, The Body Keeps Score, Trauma and Recovery, uh, you know, uh, any Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Of course, you know, I love Barbara Brown Taylor. So I think love learning to walk in the dark, <laughs> is, you know, I, I love... I love, love Barbara Brown Taylor. I think Brene Brown is doing some of the best work. It sort of mm -hmm. has touched a nerve, uh, the zeitgeist. I think if Brene Brown had written the same books that she's writing right now, but she had written them 30 years ago, most of us wouldn't know who Brene Brown is. Yeah. But her mm -hmm. content is so timely. It has struck mm -hmm. a nerve because people are starting to realize that these are not our faces. These are facades that we're walking around with. And most of us deep inside are wounded, traumatized children and adolescents uh, who are dying to find the courage to confront the pain that we've been carrying for far too long. Wow. Jonathan, it is just such a joy to speak with you. Uh, I've known you for years. We were roommates back in the day, back when we were kids. And I just constantly, constantly feel like I learned so much from you and I'm 
so challenged by your thinking. And I just, there's so many gems to take away from this conversation. So thank you for just sharing all of this with us. Yes. Thank you for taking the time and, and everyone, I want to encourage you to check out his work, all his journalists, uh, work, his, his books, podcasts, social media, all the things. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is mine, friends. Thank you for joining this episode of Real Good Company, a show about real people building good companies that make a big impact. Music from this episode is probably from one of my old demos. We hope you like it. (laughs) And Megan Schwindling is our producer. Thanks for joining and always remember to stay in real good company.